how can I help? How can I be useful in ending needless suffering? Do not be afraid of work that has no end. We have to organize a social movement. We have an opportunity to lead by example versus just talking, hot air. I think the more people in this fight, the more we grow. Eventually it could change. You know, the people are the ones that can make the change. I spent quite a few years of my life, decades at the very least, training for, preparing for, equipping to deploy to war zones. And then I spent a few years of my life overseas in a variety of conflicts. It never once occurred to me the complexity, the difficulty, or impossibility for some if you are disabled to flee or maneuver through an active war zone to get to safety. At the outset of the Ukraine invasion by Russia, over 2.7 million Ukrainians reported living with disabilities. By the time the war ends, that number is obviously going to be higher. Today's guest has helped to organize evacuations of hundreds of those people from Ukraine. His name is Jason Holden. He is a retired command master chief, and today he serves as the VP of operations for Joni and Friends, an international nonprofit. The organization is named for its founder, Joni Eriksson Tata, who became a leading disability advocate after becoming a paraplegic as a teenager. The organization leads global efforts to help children with disabilities and serve their families. Their Wheels of the World program provides wheelchairs and mobility to children around the world. Where'd your interest in the SEAL teams come? Um, I really actually didn't have interest in it, uh, to believe it or not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, back when I got selected to come and, and serve a development group, uh, you know, our support side, there was very few people that could pass the qualifications to even get in the door. So they used to do a lot of heavy recruiting uh, for the needed support elements. And, you know, some of my old leaders encouraged me to apply, and that's how I ended up there. But it wasn't like I was, oh, I want to go do that. You know what's wild is, so I, when I joined the Navy, I knew I wanted to be a SEAL. Mm -hmm. And the there was no SEAL contract, this lucky bastards. Or maybe they're not lucky. I don't know. Maybe the pipeline wasn't a good thing because attrition stayed exactly the same. So I go to boot camp and I pick OSA school because it's the shortest A school that I could think of that would get me to Buds, which mm -hmm. is on the damn neck base. Yep. I had no idea what was on the north side of that base. No idea. I would hear like random explosions, which now make sense to me in hindsight. Yep. And you'd see some dudes who were in pretty good shape. Kind of hauling ass around, no freaking clue. I didn't even know there was a development group when I joined the military. It wasn't until my first platoon when two guys were getting ready to screen to go try it that I had first heard about it. And then they were telling me where they were going. I'm like, hold on a second. I think I've been there. I didn't see that. So it was wild. How I ended up there, like, it, to me, it seemed like a natural progression, but it's interesting even wanting to go down a career path, how sometimes how little you actually know mm -hmm. about the career path itself. Yeah. So, which is wild. What uh, what brought you towards military service? Uh, most of the male, fam male family members of mine served in some capacity, Army, Marines, Navy. Um, yeah, and I just, I've always wanted to serve, right? You know, that, that's always been at my heart is to, to serve others. 
and military just fell in line with that. Plus, you know, I'm, I'm from upstate New York, which is cold. And, uh, I just wanted to get out of upstate New York and try something different. So served in the military, you know, see the world. Is what yeah. I said. Walk me through your career. Where did it start? And then where'd you finish off? Uh, of course, went to boot camp in Great Lakes, Illinois. Uh, immediately after boot camp, uh, was stationed, went to a school in Gulfport, Mississippi. Uh, Luxon, Gulfport, Mississippi. I'm trying to think if I know what a school is down there. I do not. Uh, just the, the CBA school set. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, near Kiesler Air Force Base. So okay. No, uh, after that, I was assigned to a construction battalion right there in Biloxi, uh, Gulfport, Biloxi. And I stayed there for five years, and that's where I was applied and was selected and went to development group. Um, left development group, went to, uh, trained with the Diplomatic Security Service to work on embassy security systems. Um, left there, went to, um, back to Gulfport, did a couple more deployments with another construction battalion, and came back to Little Creek, Virginia, where I was stationed at Naval Expeditionary Combat Command. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked in the N3 department uh, to apportionment, assignment, mobility, and uh, supported Admiral Tillotson during that time. Um, left there and came out here to California and went to another construction battalion unit here in Port Wainimi, California. Uh, stayed there for a few years, went to Command Master Chief School in Newport, Rhode Island, came back California to be the command master chief of battalion, and that's where I retired. How many total years? 20. Damn, CMC in 20. Most people, it's like their mid 20s. Yeah, I was a master chief at 15 years. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? A little bit of both. I mean, there's no E10, so at some point. Yeah. <laughs> no. I wish more master chiefs would recognize that. But I made chief when I was at development group, and I was only in the Navy for seven years at the time. You made E7 in seven years. Mm -hmm. God. You know, the only person I can think of who might have made nine at around 15 was probably Slab. Mm -hmm. Brit. Yeah. The Navy Cross doesn't hurt, from my understanding, when it comes to advancement. <laughs> now, now he has the Medal of Honor. Fuck. I know. But you know what? He can have both of those because yeah. what they fought their way through, I want absolutely, absolutely no part of. I'm still, I'm still baffled by the fact that you made nine at 15. What's it like being an E9, the highest? So for people listening or watching don't understand both enlisted and officer ranks, it starts 01 or E1, obviously, if you're an enlisted officer, and then tops out at 9. Some people forget that it does that, and they become an E9, and it's as if they're always bucking for the next one. Mm -hmm. People can make their choices. But, I mean, you were at the top for the last five years of your career. I mean, what's that? I'm, for clarity, I never got past middle management, so I'm just fascinated, you know, Finishing off as, you know, command master chief, but having been a nine for five years before that. Yeah, I think the, yeah, the roles change. The higher you get, the more it is about politics and people, and the less it is about operations and, and execution. So, you know, you kind of miss the execution aspect, um, but they need leaders, right? And finding good leaders that are, young enough to bring in new styles or new mentalities versus, you know, a lot of the military is promotion to incompetence. And, you know, they just stay around long enough and they get promoted. I want to make a soundbite out of what you just said, just so you know. Okay. I want to. I don't know if they will. 
promotion to incompetence is a very real thing. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's not, and it's not done as a negative thing. It's just, it, it's natural attrition. You can only accomplish as much as you're capable of. And I probably hit it as well at some point. Um, you know, you can fool yourself into thinking you're good at what you do, but it's, it's the outward opinion of, of your execution that really defines that. So, um, yeah, I, I think I struggled the most with the politics in the role. Um, you know, no clear definitions of your, your role or responsibility, but a lot of, uh, of expectations that you're supposed to own everything, but you don't have, you're not empowered to own everything. And that's the tough thing about the military is empowerment and accountability are two sides of the same coin. They're quick to empower or hold you accountable, but they're not quick to empower you. It's my favorite uh, paperwork that I ever got when you would get advanced. You are authorized to wear the rank of E5. Mm -hmm. You're not entitled to any pay benefits or authority of <laughs> Exactly. Like, what are you doing to me? I can <laughs> wear this next rank, but I'm not going to get paid for the next year. And if I get in trouble, which for clarity, there's a high likelihood I will, I'm going to get this stripped away and then probably the one below it. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Hard for people to understand if they haven't been in that world, but you have to have both. Otherwise, I think you set people up for failure. And I don't know why they do that. I don't know where that structure came from because it's not a winning recipe. Mm. It's micromanagement. Yeah. Is what it is. You know, leaders can't let go because they, they think they're not going to be important if they give that, a you know, that authority back to the person that's responsible for it. You know, this opportunity that I, I do now um, was expressed to me from a, a friend. like Before you got out? Before I got out. Okay. And I told him, I actually said, no, that's not, the, that's not for me. And then I went back, did my last deployment, um, you know, coming home to your daughter that's now, at the time, I think she was 11, and, you know, just missing those big life things starts weighing on you plus you know other things happened and I said you know maybe this is a way I'm being told that I need to start looking for something else and that friend just happened to be right there and says hey I got something else for you and pointed me in the direction of where I'm at today before that conversation had you put much thought into the nonprofit world no no actually I was uh, I had planned on pursuing um, IT type work. I had been in, that's what my degree was in and I had an interest in. So I was going to pursue something in the IT community. So what presented itself? Talk to me about what you're doing now. Well, originally I was the director of a program within this nonprofit. So the nonprofit is called Johnny and Friends. Uh, Johnny is the founder, Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, she was a typical 17 year old that uh, dove off a uh, shallow, uh, dove off a platform into shallow water at 17 and snapped her uh, spine. I mean, are we talking literally like the example that's on the side of pool decks that has the Ghostbuster? Exactly. So, and um, that led her to become a quadriplegic and look for a purpose in life. And she established Johnny and Friends uh, in the 70s as a way to advocate for people with disabilities because in her time, uh, when this all happened, people with disabilities were cast aside, even here in the U.S. Uh, she helped write the American with Disabilities Act, get it passed, served on uh, the presidential committees with, I believe, Bush and Clinton, served with Condoleezza Rice. So she's been at a high level of 
serving the disability community as a quadriplegic, which is it's an amazing story if you if you look into it. So I was uh, my friend committed me to come and serve as the director of Wheels for the World, and uh, Wheels for the World was a program where they take wheelchairs that are going to get thrown away here in the United States. They collect them. They have volunteers all over the U.S., effectively known as the Chair Corps. Uh, You're joking. No. Because that's spectacular. Chair Corps. What's their logo? Uh, just a wheelchair, like moving forward. I'm, I'm trying to think of unit patches, yeah. flare pieces. <laughs> so they would collect these wheelchairs. Uh, we would ship them to prison restoration centers. So these are vocational programs within prisons here in the U.S., private, wow. uh, state, or federal. And they restore them back to like new. But the prisoners are also gaining vocational uh, skills as they're doing this. They restore the wheelchairs back to like new. We package them up in sea containers and ship them internationally where we send missionary teams to do distributions uh, to give the wheelchairs away to people that could never afford a wheelchair in third world countries. So that was the program I came in to run was all aspects of the program, the supply chain, the the people, the programs, the missionaries, the travel, the security, the medical response, the uh, logistics of getting people from point A to point B, getting from the U.S. to that third world country while keeping them safe. So very similar to some of the stuff I did. As, you, as you're describing that, I'm literally thinking about the roles that you held. What's the, I mean, how many wheelchairs per year are we talking there? Uh, t between 15 and 20,000. Wow. The things that happen in life that you have no idea about, mm -mm. you know, unless it directly touches you. I tell me more like it. It's fascinating. Yeah. Um, you know that. So you started there. I mean, that's obviously not what you're doing now. It seems like you've lateraled again. Yeah. You know, I, I thank God for my values. It's allowed me to promote within the organization. Now I serve as their vice president of operations. So it conglomerates all their programs and services under um, my department. How did you guys get involved in Ukraine? Ah, interesting you say that because the last program I was talking about, Johnny's House, is fairly new. We realized during the pandemic when we couldn't send missionaries, when we couldn't travel, we couldn't do our legacy programs because of limitations, we were very kind of handcuffed. And I said, this isn't, this isn't what we need to be doing. We need to adjust and flex and continue to find new ways to serve the disability community because Right now, it's even more demanded because these are the people that are, are pushed aside first. So, you know, when cities shut down, there's no public transportation. They have no way to get anywhere. So they're not getting to the grocery stores. They have no food. They were literally starving to death on the sides of streets. So Johnny's house was the precipice of an idea of, like, how do we use indigenous people to continue our programs the way we would if we were there? And uh, we had just started uh, our Johnny's house in Luke's Ukraine through with our partner Agape. And we had started purchasing materials, the blocks, the building blocks to r build this facility. And the war started. And those building blocks went from being construction supplies to being barricades and blocking windows to protect them from bomb blasts. So the ironclad crew mm. came to me and they're like hey do you want to talk to jason about what it is that you're doing and uh i had never once thought in the eight deployments that i had done or the time that i had spent in the military 
I'm ashamed to say I had never once thought about the impact of war on disabled people. Because mm-hmm. um, I have the luxury of not having to deal with that on a day-to-day level and understanding the complexities of that. So when they pitched it to me and they talked about what it is that you are doing and why, and, and you can look at pictures of Ukraine and, you know, a uh, siren goes off because, hey, it's time to get down into the basement. Well, for you and I, like, okay, let's head yeah. down into the basement. I had never even considered that there is a whole class or category of people where that's not even available. Mm-hmm. Have you been over there yourself? Uh, I've been to Poland, not into Ukraine. Talk about specifically what you guys are doing in Ukraine to help with that. So in in the initial stages, uh, when the war kicked off, it was exactly that. We had We were receiving calls uh, from people here in the U.S. that had family members there that knew of our organization that we operated in Ukraine um, and just struggling on what, what do we do? My, my brother, who is a, a quadriplegic, is on the 13th floor of this building in this town. The power shut off. It, they destroyed the power system. There's no elevators. And his uh, care provider left him, just left him. What, what can we do? And it was just call after call after call, just constantly asking us, like, is there anything you can do, you know? And so we started looking at, okay, what can we do and how do we do it? So we started enabling our uh, church networks and our partners. We had a large network of communities that we were asking, hey, we need, we need you to, to figure out how to get a hold of this person. We were literally asking our volunteers to drive cars into combat zones to go and find people, help carry them down flights of stairs, put them in the car, and drive them out to a safer place where we could evacuate further out. Uh, it just became like an onward staging movement operation. And you know, most people don't realize that disability affects quite a few people. Here in the, in the worldwide, it's about 61 million people suffer from a disability. So you think about Ukraine with a population of 41 million people, uh, 12%, that's about just under 5 million people living with a disability within Ukraine. So when the war started, when bombs started dropping and, and um, you know, the Russians just started non-discreetly just eliminating communities. Just leveling them, it seems like, from the outside. They were the first ones left behind. And I think about that because, you know, we don't get a choice. You know, I think about us as parents. What if we had a child with a disability? We don't get that choice. There's no marker that tells us that our kid's going to be born perfect or not. We always hope and pray that's what happens. But, you know, or, I mean, think about your your experiences when you were shot. That could have led to a lifelong disability. I mean, I think about Turbo and some of these other guys, right? So it literally was a matter of like a quarter of an inch, either direction. Exactly. So you don't get to choose when disability affects your life. So, you know, when you think about these foreign countries where these people have these disabilities and they're being cast aside, why them? Why do they get left behind? Why do they get cast aside so easily because they have a disability? That's that's not fair. So we we as Johnny and friends feel that, you know, that, they are equal and need to be treated with the same dignity and respect as everyone else. And sometimes that just takes a little bit of extra effort to, to care and, and be there for them. What was the response that you were getting from people when you would ask like 
we need you to go into a dangerous environment and find this person and get them out. A uh, little nervousness. Um, it's fair. Yeah. Fear, <laughs> uh, concern for their, for their safety. And, um, so we, we use a lot of support, uh, networks to provide information, intelligence on where we were letting our, our volunteers and, and friends that are serving on our behalf go and not go. Um, and then just taking advantage of local churches that were in those areas that hadn't evacuated to that we knew the the number or how to get hold of them to go and hey get this person out of this building get them to the edge of town and we'll come get them uh, so we had a, a a woman named galena who you probably saw in the interviews and she was our main partner there she was the person that we directly connected with and she immediately set up an operation center a talk and in, in our words right to manage this list of people that we were giving, how we were getting a hold of them, and then what we were going to do with them. Because it's not as easy as just like you and I, get on a bus, let's go, and I'll just drop you off at a hotel down the, you know, on the western side of the country, and you'll yes, be fine. Cut it. No, you need disability accessible bathrooms and showers and services and medical providers and, you know, just devices, mobility equipment. Uh, medical supplies, medicines, like things that are required for them to survive. And those things are not readily available when they just leave or get carried out of their home and leave all that behind. So we went into action working with all our partners across the European front to where can we take these people and get them to those services. So we replaced Ukrainians in Switzerland, Poland, Romania, uh, the Netherlands, Germany, um, just all these different places that we were able to leverage the partnerships and friends that we had made through our programs and services for many, many years to now come alongside when it was needed most. Yeah, as you're describing what would be required, it seems like you know getting them out of the building is the first step, but in an active war zone like that, it almost seems like removing them from the country is the mm -hmm. only path forward for sustainability for them, which I would imagine requires some complexity in all those countries that you are trying to settle people in. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk about the process that is like, this is where somebody's at and this is where we want to land them? Like even from a legal perspective, what has to happen for that to occur? Yeah. So it's a, it's a large logistical pipeline. So the first step was to get them out of the, the combat environments, the most critical risk areas, and get them to the western side of the country. Uh, we had a partner facility in, in Luke's already. So we were able to, to use that as our hub center on the Western side to get these people at least to stay until we could get their paperwork approved. Uh, because we had just went through the, all the approval processes for the facility we were building, we knew the local officials, we knew the government uh, people that had the capacity to sign off on all the paperwork for us to get them out of the country. So they're visas, their passports, or whatever they needed to, to transition across the border. Um, at that point, then it was, okay, what do we have to have to land them on the other side? And what approvals or, you know, do we need to have uh, the government or the cities uh, accept these people? Because places filled up quick. Uh, you can imagine millions of people were exiting the country as fast as possible to get wherever they could. So even the facilities that we were going to, typical people were taking up spots because uh, that was just what was available. 
So we would do the paperwork uh, for them in Luke's. It would take about 12 to 24 hours. Uh, we would create lists of who we were transporting, where we were transporting them. Uh, we would put them on a, a bus uh, and usually uh, right before dusk, drive them to a border checkpoint where we had a school that we would uh, stop at, let them use the bathroom, get some coffee before they took the long journey across the border, which took hours and hours and hours of sitting on a bus. Uh, you know, the bus drivers uh, would come in from Poland, just across the border to that school, and then put them all on the bus and turn around and drive right back out of the country. And they would take them to an onward staging point for a night. And then we would, at that point, determine where was their final destination. And they could be on a bus for 16, 18 hours to the, to the final destination. And a person with a disability who might be on a breathing apparatus or just physically has to be in a, a prone type position on a bus is not an easy feat. Um, but man, these, these bus drivers that were just hired, we paid them to drive the bus to pick them up and drive them wherever, you saw them change through the action, right? They helped, they started to become the change agents that we wanted to see through their actions. They would get off the bus and help these people. They would help change diapers on adults you know, with disabilities and just consistently you saw them grow in their, their faith, they grow in their, their, their commitment to what we were doing and, and come alongside of us to do it. Yeah. If that doesn't like touch your soul to some degree, then I don't know what that says about you because God damn. Wow. For the people that you have placed in those countries, I'm, this is a broad question. I'm sure the answer may vary. Do a lot of them want to go back to Ukraine or do they want to stay where they are? Um, a little, probably a 50-50 mix. You just took a person from their home with nothing, dropped them off at a, a facility that they know is not forever, all right? It can only be for right now probably 18 months to two years. And they don't speak the language. All the people around them are, you know, the, the workers, the serve, you know, the people that serve the facility or the, the people in the town, they all speak different languages uh, that they don't understand and they can't really assimilate well into. Um, but, you know, they don't, that's not their home. They, they, they miss their home. And I can, I can understand that. No matter how bad your home becomes. Still your home. Still your home. Yeah, that's a tough one. I'd imagine a large percentage percentage of them have also been separated from their direct family members as well, mm -hmm. which is another complexity. Shifting back a little bit to the COVID in the U.S., again, I'm ashamed to admit that I didn't consider a single time how the lockdowns would have impacted people with disabilities and mm -hmm. the impact on their life. How is that, I mean, again, a question that probably has a broad answer, but how was that largely managed and handled here in the U.S.? Was it nonprofits stepping up and putting mechanisms into place? Are there state and local organizations that could handle that? It, I mean, it's the first pandemic I've ever lived through. Like, what we lived through the last <laughs> few years was, that was a new one for me. You weren't around for the Spanish flu? No, no, no it wasn't. Thankfully, don't want to, uh, yeah, I don't want to live through another one either. Um, but it's certainly, I think it tested and strained us in ways. I mean, I, I can't, I had never even thought about that. I'm curious because I'm sure you have more information on this than probably most, but how, how did those issues get tackled in real time? Yeah, I would say you know, historically, um, 
the Christian community and the nonprofit community steps into the gap more than people realize and provides services that just without it, I don't, I don't, I don't even know how the U.S. would survive. Um, you know, you look at most hospitals, most clinics, they all started from, you know, roots of a, a nonprofit or a Christian or Catholic based service provider. And I kind of liked the feeling that, that COVID gave a typical person, you know, they, they isolated them. They put them in a home, told me couldn't leave, told them if they left, you know, they could die or they, you know, they, you know, they didn't know what to do. And they, they quickly struggled. They went into these huge depressive states. I would describe it as they lost their minds. They lost their minds. <laughs> and I always tell people, now that's what a person with a disability lives their life like. And they didn't get the choice. They're sometimes homebound. They can't leave their homes. They're isolated. They don't have their friends groups. They, they just can't go hang out like, like everyone else. And you got a little peek into that lifestyle because of COVID. And, um, yeah, and I, if it wasn't for nonprofits stepping in to, to help out communities and, you know, I think around the world, like I'll use Peru as an example, you know, our partner said, Hey, like we, we need to do something because the curfews, people with disability, there's a, there was a four hour window. People could leave their homes to go get essential goods. A person with a disability could not physically leave their home, get to a grocery store, get through the, get enough food or, uh, uh supplies and get back to their home before the curfew hit. In places like India, I mean, you probably saw on the news, they were just beating people out on the streets with, with sticks if they were out past curfew. And got a little Western. It got very Western. So, you know, organizations like ours, again, we reached out to our partners. What can we do? So we started working direct action with those uh, grocery stores or, you know, big box chains and said, hey, we will pay, package up a food kit, and we will go and deliver it to those that we know need it the most. And, you know, people came alongside of us, said, how, how can we help? And we said, hey, you know, just like any other nonprofit, we need your support and we'll, we'll, we'll show you what we can do with very little. And I think that's, that's the great thing about a lot of nonprofits do so much with so little, where you have the federal government and our, our network of state governments that utilize a lot of our tax dollars, have billions at their disposal, and you see no real, real change happen quickly because they're handcuffed by policy, protocol, restrictions, liability, where nonprofits and Christian organizations have a little bit more flexibility because the cuffs are off. Yeah, it almost seems like the larger the government with unlimited funding, like they can't even get out of their own way. Mm -hmm. They are paralyzed by the fact that they could well, they probably couldn't do anything that they want to, but they have almost unlimited means and can't figure out a way to find a viable solution. Whereas a, not that what you're doing is a shoestring organization, but in comparison to a federal government, what you're able to accomplish is wholly unbelievable. Mm -hmm. How many people do you think um, you've gotten out of Ukraine so far at this point or helped remove from the situation that they at least first started in? Uh, just over 600 people with disabilities, plus their families, caregivers, yep. et cetera, dogs, cats. Um, and it's funny, I said dogs and cats, but it, when when the first evacuation started happening, you saw people, dogs, and cats coming across the border before you started seeing people with disabilities come across the border. 
that means people are prioritizing their pets over prioritizing people with disabilities, which is an interesting. I was going to say, what does that say about humanity? Mm. I don't think it says anything good. It means we, uh, we, need, we need value and we need hope and we know where we can find that hope. Is what you're doing in Ukraine, what your organization is doing in Ukraine, I feel like it's a great test bed for other places in the world when situations like Ukraine repeat itself. Because, I mean, as long as we're talking about a planet populated by human beings, it's going to happen again mm -hmm. because it's been happening since the beginning of time. Is it helping you guys refine your system so you are more prepared, either both here in the U.S. to tackle the things that have happened in the U.S., but also abroad in the other uh, countries that you're working in? Absolutely. It's a, it's a skill set you learn only through fire. Trial by fire is a, a, a real thing. And if you don't do it, you don't realize what you know and what you don't know. And, you know, in the Ukraine instance, there was a lot of nonprofits that packed up and left, that pulled all their people out immediately because of the risk. Uh, Just the pure risk, physical risk. Physical yeah. risk. And they, you know, that they didn't want to live with that. You know, one of their volunteers might not make it. And, um, but I think when you, when you trust a, a little bit differently, when you have a different perspective on why you're, why you're doing what you're doing, you know, for us, it's faith, right? Mm -hmm. We have faith in, faith in our religion. And um, we knew that if we were doing the right thing, that protection would be provided. Do you think that that faith is required to be convicted in your morals? Can you have it absent faith? Um, and I ask is some, I ask is somebody, I'm asking a question for myself. I, I think I land from a faith perspective at agnostic. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like when people are like, Oh, why do you say that you're dumb? It's like, cause I'm fucking dumb. Like, I don't know what came before me. I don't know what's going to come after. I don't know what's going to happen when I die. I do know that the earth is round and that there's not an ice wall in Antarctica, all right? Because I've checked both of those out personally. I don't know if aliens exist, maybe. So when it comes to religion, I've actually throughout the course of my life been very envious of people that have had a deep faith. Uh, and my ex-wife, I, I used to go to church with her when she would want to. It was kind of peaks and valleys. Sometimes she would want to go. Sometimes she would not want to go. And uh, for me, it was not... I mean, I would listen to what they were saying, but I actually would watch the other people at church. And I was so envious of the people that you could tell were utterly and con completely convicted in their faith. And I wanted to feel that way, but I also didn't want to fake it, mm -hmm. which is why I land at agnostic. Um, some of the most courageous people that I've ever worked with have been incredibly devout in their faith. And uh, I've always, I was just, you know, does it provide that additional level of, I don't know, a rough way to put it, I guess, the rigidity in your spine and the moments that matter, you know, your ability, your willingness or ability to put your toes on the line to stand for what you believe in? Because I feel like I've been able to do that in my life and to express my values to my kids. And when it comes to faith, I, I just try to be honest with people. Like, I don't know, but what I also don't want to do is lie about how I feel. You know, I, I'm envious, but I can't fake it. And so I'm doing the best I can with what I have. And from somebody who is convicted in their faith, I'm just curious your thoughts on whether or not at the end of the day, you have to have it to be able to hold those morals deeply enough. I mean, is it possible to press somebody to a place with that, without that faith that would fall apart? 
or can you do it without? Uh, for me, I think it's a false structure, right? You can believe in things, but if it doesn't have anything that supports those beliefs, it's a false structure. Most people's beliefs do come from some biblical truth, you know, and I always, when people that are agnostic and I talk to them, I always say, well, it all starts with Pasquale's wager, right? What do you lose by believing in Christ versus what do you lose by not believing in Christ? And Pasquale's wager tells us that if you don't believe in Christ and at the end there is, you lose. But if you do believe in Christ and at the end there is, you win. And what do you lose or win in life by not believing or believing? But saying you believe and actually believing are two different things. So somebody could enter into that wager and be like, you know, you're right. I believe. But do they? And that's where I land. I could tell you right now, like, you know what? That actually makes an incredible amount of sense. But in my heart, like, I'm not at that spot. So I would be lying to you and mm -hmm. entering into an unfair or an illegitimate wager with you. And this is like the, the conversation I have with myself. And it goes round and round and round. <laughs> but, but Henry Ford put it best. Whether you believe you can or you can't. You're right. Okay, I'm going to chew on that one. That sounds like a very good t-shirt idea, actually, for the podcast. What's the biggest struggle you guys are facing as an organization? Um, the need is ever-growing. That's the biggest struggle. I'm going to assume that's a combination of dollars, but also manpower? Yeah, I would say, no, more on the, the serving side. Right. When we go and we do an event like a wheels for the world where we distribute 240 wheelchairs in a week and then you 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 close up the, the doors on the last night and you walk out, and you're dead tired and you look down the street and there's 200 people just hoping there's one more. And most of them are kids. You know, and they've been dragged. I, I think of this story like I, I remember looking down at this this probably 18 year old male. Uh, you could tell he was a paraplegic. His legs didn't work. His mom literally had no way to get him there, so dragged him, like pulled him, walked backwards. And she had done that so often that the tops of his shoes were completely almost gone. Because only his toes were touching. Because his feet would just drag as she dragged him everywhere. She was just hoping to get a wheelchair, just hoping to get a wheelchair. And every time we do an event, there's not enough space, there's not enough room, there's wait lists, there's, and we just... You just can't meet the need enough because it, it takes a lot of time, effort, and of course money to do it. And um, yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge is how do you make the difference? How do you keep making the difference when you know you're leaving so many people behind that still need you? I think it's such a powerful story too. And this storytelling aspect, at least in the modern world that we live at, where I describe it as the anxiety rectangle mm. where people they go to to make themselves incredibly uncomfortable and anxious about the world around them but you're so it's a beautiful tool and it's a curse at the same time because you're going to find what you're looking for and not everybody's looking for great stuff you can easily be fooled um there's a lot of bias that goes into it but it gives organizations like yours the opportunity to tell a story i think that that story of a mother willing to do that for their for their child and mm -hmm. even just a picture of the shoes alone right if that doesn't put you on your ass i don't know what to say about your humanity at that point but that storytelling and connecting with people i would hope that it it provides them at least some insight into what people are dealing with on a, on a day-to-day level and, and i put myself in the following statement that i don't spend nearly enough time thinking about that um 
And it's easy to say, oh, I'm too busy. Mm -hmm. I have too much stuff going on. But the reality of it is, is I'm focusing my energy where I want to focus it, as most people do. And I think there's constant room for improvement in stories like that. I mean, I'm super glad that you're here today to talk about this because, like I said, when the Ironclad crew presented this to me, I was like, holy, we, we need to talk about this for sure. Because um, if I've never thought about it, there's probably at least a few other people mm -hmm. who have never thought about it. How long do you think you'll keep doing what you're doing now? Um, what would cause you to leave? If I thought I wasn't making a difference anymore. You know, I, I'm a service type person. I'm, I serve in the military. I'm serving the disability community. Like that is, that's where my heart is. And if I thought the organization wasn't valid, meaning, you know, they lost their values or, you know, misused, you know, their, their position, um, or we, we weren't making a difference because of restrictive requirements that could happen, right? It happens every day. The faith-based organizations are targeted left and right. Um, I think if I thought that we couldn't make, continue to make different, a difference in this world, I, that would challenge me and I'd want to go where I could make a difference. What's the most challenging environment your organization has worked in so far? Ooh, um, probably the Middle East. Uh, generally, as a Christian organization, we're not accepted. Uh, we're actually, it's much more challenging to do any little thing. Ukraine was tough, but, you know, logistically, the Western side of Ukraine still had a lot of functioning ability. It was more the Eastern front, things past Kiev to the West, where it got really hairy and very very challenging to do our work. Um, but places like Jordan, Syria, um, Beirut, it's just complicated. And deep philosophical differences. Deep philosophical difference. And, you know, when you're, when you're doing a Wheels for the World outreach and a sheik walks up, a governmental sheik in the full garb, and he stands there and watch, and he comes over to the interpreter, and the interpreter turns and says, uh, you know, he, he says he appreciates what you're doing for his people. And, you know, you know, it's just a little bit of a show of the government supporting uh, because they aren't doing it. They're not able to provide these services that these nonprofits are doing for their people. So even in Cuba, you know, we, we partner with the communist government and because that's the only way we're going to get in the door. But we do two outreaches there every year, plus a family retreat. And the Cuban government comes, they show face, oh, we did this for you, our people. But, you know, we can look around and just see that the world is just in so much despair still. There's so much just loss, no hope. These people are just lacking hope. And that's typical people. I mean, the people with disabilities. When you go to a grocery store in, in, a, in Cuba and there's just a few items on the shelf, you just think, how do they, how do they live like this? But we, we turned a blind eye to it, and it's 90 miles off our Florida coast. But that's the world we live in, and it, the dark corners of the world are where Johnny and friends is called to, and that's those are the challenging areas. But if it was easy, everyone would do it, and that's why we're going to continue to do it because it's not easy, but it's where it's needed the most. If you had unlimited funding, would you change what you are doing as an organization or just do more? We would do more. Absolutely. I don't. I don't think, I mean, there's, 
there's probably a couple problems here in the U.S. that we would love to get after um, if we had unlimited budget. Um, things like respite, long-term respite care for complex disabilities. There's a lot of respite facilities for what we for for high-functioning disabled people uh, that are you know autistic. They they can still they just need a little bit of assistance, but the ones that have nowhere to go and their parents are aging out um, that are worried about what happens to my my 27 year old 28 year old with a severe disability when mom and me die what does happen to them um go out here in la walk around the streets you'll find them on the side of the street um most don't make it uh, some are in jail because they don't know what else to do with them others are in institutions but there's not even a lot of those available they're all full so almost a non-existent safety net yeah so you as a parent, you're sitting there wondering end of life, what's going to happen to my child? So that's one thing that we've always talked about is how, if we had unlimited budget, that's something we would probably look at getting into is creating a place or multiple places on where parents could send their, their child, uh, adult child with a disability to go live out their life in a, in a Christian community environment that is where they're going to be loved on and, and not just stuck in a padded room and the door locked and fed through a hole three times a day like they're in jail. So I'll let you close it out. And my request would be this. Give me the elevator pitch. We get into the elevator together. We're on the 30th floor. We're going to part ways when we get to the first floor. 60 seconds is what you got. Give me the pitch. Johnny and friends. All right. So Johnny and friends seeks to provide hope to those with disabilities around the world. And through our programs, Wheels for the World, Johnny's House, and Family Retreats, you have the opportunity to make a difference in somebody's life, a person with a disability's life, a child's life. And without you um, coming alongside of an organization like this, those people are going to be cast aside, left in back rooms to never know uh, what it's like to live a true life. And more importantly, to never know the gospel and to know Christ as their savior. So if you want to help us, if you want to partner with us, and if you really want to commit to what you were called to do in biblical text, uh, to go and do Johnny and friends is the way you can do it. It's perfect. Would you add anything else? Do you want to add anything else? Last words are yours. Mm. I just appreciate, uh, change agents. Uh, the difference that this, this podcast can make in this world, it, it may not be seen in the short term, but someday you'll see that this is making a difference in people's lives. It's putting programs and services like Johnny and friends out there for a community uh, that would probably not hear about it in any other way. So I thank you and your, your team for um, just sharing the vision of all these different programs and services that are available and uh, the people that are making differences around the world. My pleasure. And thank you guys for doing what you're doing. Again, it's my shame to admit how little time I had spent thinking about it, but ever since hearing about it, it's funny how things start bubbling to the top. So yeah. I deeply appreciate what you guys are doing. Thank you, brother. Awesome. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can learn more about the work that Jason and his team are doing by visiting joniandfriends.org. That is J-O-N-I and friends.org. See you next time.